morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from Clean Cuts Miles Davis Studio at Broadcast House in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. Now, since you are listening to this podcast, you obviously spend at least some of your time connected to the Internet. So think for a moment. What have you done online today? Maybe you've checked out a few websites, ordered some socks and underwear, downloaded an episode or two or six on Netflix. But if you're like most people, and get over it, we're all like most people in more ways than we realize, you've probably shared something, an article that made you go, wow, a tweet that got you laughing, a video that rocked your world. Why did you do that? And why do some things get shared while others wither in obscurity? Those are questions that our guest today has been trying to answer most of his adult life. Jonah Berger is a professor of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. His research centers on the science of social transmission, why we talk about some things and not others, why and why some of those things products, ideas, behaviors, capture our imaginations and our wallets. He's deftly summarized much of what social scientists know on this topic in his fascinating best-selling book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. And he's with us here through the magic of Skype, Jonah Berger. Welcome Thanks to so much for hours. having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Now, let's get here. So in 2000, Malcolm Gladwell, a previous Office Hours guest, wrote The Tipping Point and introduced the popular concept of stickiness. Then... In 2007, Chip Heath and Dan Heath, also previous Office Hours guests, built on that with Made to Stick. I see your book, and it's called, again, folks, Contagious, as kind of part of that trilogy. Tell me how your book is differs from those two books and, and also, more important, how it builds on its ideas. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, and I very much see those books as inspirations for me in, in writing Contagious, Why Things Catch On. But we've learned so much uh, since the tipping point. You know, the, the idea that there are social epidemics is a very powerful one. Uh, but in terms of why people share some things rather than others, we didn't really know that when that book came out. It came out over 10 years ago, and we've learned a bit since then. To me, uh, the tipping point is almost like a car. You can think about uh, social epidemics like a car, and there are different parts to that car. And word of mouth is the engine for that car. If we don't understand how word of mouth works, it's going to be really hard to get our social epidemics off the ground. And so whether you sell a product, you want people to adopt an idea, or you want people to change their behavior, you need to understand that social influence between individuals and and how it works. Made to Stick is also a great book, really important for helping us think about how we make messages that people might remember. But how do we not only create messages that people remember, but they also share from person to person? Because if we want to build a big epidemic, we need people to pass those messages on. So you can almost see Contagious as made to spread. Uh, same ideas, same kind of blend of stories and science, but focused on why people share things rather than why people remember them. Yeah, and it, what, I mean, one of your, your points about, the, about the, the tipping point, which again, I mean, it's sort of remarkable to me that that book came out 14 years ago. Is um, and, and I like your metaphor of the car and the engine, but I mean, you know, at, at some level, the tipping point really talks about the role of the messenger in these epidemics, and yours talks about the message itself. I think the one problem with the tipping point is people walked away from that book saying, if I just find some special people, 
If I just find some mavens, connectors, and salesmen, my ideas will take off. If I just find those hipsters in the East Village and give them my product, <laughs> it'll be really popular. Um, and since then, a lot of research has shown that that's just not the case, that certain people don't have more influence on helping things catch on than others do. Uh, sociologist Duncan Watts has a great analogy. He talks about a forest fire. And if you think about a forest fire, the size of the fire doesn't depend on the size of the initial spark. It depends on the whole forest being ready to catch blaze. Mm -hmm. And so same thing when we think about influence. It's not just one influential person that makes everyone adopt something. Everyone has to share that thing, whether they have 10 friends or 10,000. And so what Contagious is really about is more, as, as you nicely said, about the message than the messenger. How can we design messages that anyone's more likely to share, whether they're popular or not, whether they're persuasive or not, because many more people have 10 or 100 friends than have 10,000 friends. There's a lot of hype around these idea of influentials and you know, a lot of money chasing those, that notion, but there's just no data to back mm. it up as true. And so the idea of getting everyone to share to me is much more powerful and important. Yeah. So would would you then let's so let's let, let me pick up on that for a moment. So let's say that a uh, consumer products company brings you in Wharton professor uh, for some consulting. Would you encourage them not to focus much on the uh, the influentials, uh, not to focus that much on getting the right people to spread the message? I think I want to be careful to separate those two things. I agree that there are a right type of people. That's your target market. Whether you're a you know, small business, you're a neighborhood restaurant, you don't need a viral video. You need the people in your area to share word of mouth mm -hmm. about you. And so people are important. The, the recipient of the message, who's sharing the message is important. But it's not because some people have more influence than others. It's because they're the right people to adopt the thing you're hoping folks will change their behavior on. I do all sorts of, of consulting. I've worked with you know, large companies like Google and LinkedIn to small startups. Just today, I was working with an organization to get Americans walking more. Um, you know, how how can we get people walking? It's a great behavior. makes people healthy. How can we get them to walk more? Everyone knows that they should walk. They're just not doing it. And to me, it's not about you know, having a celebrity get on, uh, you know, whether it's on a video or on television saying walking is great. It's about getting more people walking. It's about having more people say, hey, I'm going for a walk. Can I get you to come with me? Uh -huh. It's about more people talking about walking and using that to create a movement, more from the bottom up than from the top well, down. Let, let, let's come back to walking. It's actually a really interesting it's, – it's, it's a really interesting topic. We can talk. We'll sort of look at walking, perhaps a little bit through some of the lenses that you've created in your in your own research, and then also walking raises some interesting questions about um, choice architecture, even about physical architecture and so forth. But one of the things that's interesting that I, that I took away as a reader from the book is is um, that maybe 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 we've oversold a little bit the sort of online virality, and and we've undersold a little bit just two people talking face to face as a way for messages to spread. Is that right? Is that an accurate reading? S certainly. What's, what's amazing about word of mouth is if you ask people, hey, guess what percent of word of mouth is online? So on all the social media sites, on blogs, on uh, online reviews, if you had to guess what percent, most people would say something like 60, uh -huh. maybe 70%. The answer is 7 Hmm. Only 7% of all word of mouth is online. It's much smaller than we think. Hmm. And one of the reasons is there's lots of hype around online. You know, there's lots of attention to these new technologies. It's exciting and it's new. But just as you, as you said, most conversations are face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Most conversations are having lunch with a colleague from work, having drinks after, friend, after work with your friends, having breakfast with your family. Face-to-face -face is the original social media. And in all this chase around the technology, we forgot about the psychology. 
Because just because you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, just because you're doing social media doesn't mean you're doing it effectively. And so to me, it's much more important to understand why people share, regardless of what channel we think about. Yeah. If, if online's what you're going after, great. Offline, there's more word of mouth there. Go after that too. But regardless of which channel you're using, you got to understand why people pass something on rather than something else. So it's it's uh, it's it's neo uh, uh, Marshall McLuhanism. It's the message is the message in many ways is what you're saying. Um, <laughs> so um, so let's um, so I, I'll give you. I mean, one of the things I and it's a great example of the of the ideas you're talking about. But you have an example in your book. Of course, because you're a Philadelphian, at least right now you are a Philadelphian, um, the quintessential Philadelphia example of a cheesesteak. But it's a unique kind of cheesesteak. And in that cheesesteak, along with the, the, the cheese and the, and, the, and the peppers and the onions and the steak itself are some lessons for virality. Tell us about that unique cheesesteak. There's a restaurant in Philadelphia called Barclay Prime. It's a high-end steakhouse. Uh, And if you think about it, restaurants have a problem that's very similar to almost any industry your listeners are in. There's a huge amount of competition and not everybody succeeds. Most restaurants close within the first year of opening. It's like a a battlefield littered with closed places. And steakhouses (laughs) are no different. If you you look out there, you know, in any city or town, there's Ruth Chris, there's Morton's, there's dozens of high-end steakhouses. How could this new place, Barclay Prime, cut through the clutter? And so they tried to figure out, well, we don't have a big advertising budget. We got to figure out what can we do to get some attention for our products. We've got steaks. Sure, you know, everybody's got a porterhouse this or an aged ribeye that, what can we do to get some attention? And so they did something unique. They came out with a $100 cheesesteak. $100 for a cheesesteak. How how can you possibly justify a Benjamin for a cheesesteak? (laughs) You know, I was uh, lucky enough to have this cheesesteak. You had it. Was it it good? It sounded delicious, actually. Someone else was paying. Good. uh, And that was very nice of them. So uh, it it was good. A little bit on the rich side. Uh Uh, It has, you know, Kobe beef. It has lobster. It has um, truffles on top. It has Taleggio cheese. It comes with a half bottle of uh, Clico champagne. Oh, man. It's a very decadent, (laughs) decadent cheesesteak. But what's so neat about it is it's become an amazing talking piece for the restaurant. You know, Philly, if you go to Philly, people love to talk about cheesesteaks. And that $100 cheesesteak story fits in right in that conversation. If you look when the restaurant came out, they got a huge amount of buzz for this option on the menu. It's not even the people are necessarily eating it. Most people that go there don't even order the $100 cheesesteak. Hmm. And even people who haven't been there talk about it. It's become a talking point because it fits these ideas of word of mouth. It gives people social currency. It's triggered by the environment. All the six things I talk about in the book. Yeah, let's, gave... let, let, let's slow down there sir, a little bit. So let's unpack that, let's unpack that, that, that cheesesteak. And, 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 and we're talking, folks, to uh, Jonah Berger. He's the author of the great book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. And he's talking about a $100 cheesesteak, okay, that people like to talk about. It's this unique product. And in some ways, this cheesesteak embodies the principles that he's found in his own and others' research about what makes a message spread, why things catch on. And, Joni, you have um, an acronym for this. So why don't you tell us the acronym, and then we'll go back to the cheesesteak, and and you can talk about how the cheesesteak reflects some of those elements. Sure. So the acronym is STEPS, uh, and it actually has two P's in it because I'm not very clever. I couldn't come up with a better acronym. Uh, But that stands for social currency, triggers, emotion, public, 
practical value, and stories. And, and each of these is a psychological principle that either in our work or others' research has shown to drive people to talk and share. And it's also a chapter in the book that I illustrate both the science and the stories of, of how these things work. But to come back to the cheesesteak, for example, I mean, first, it's just a remarkable story. Yeah. If you find out about a $100 cheesesteak, it makes you look really cool and smart in the know to, to tell a story like that. So that's social currency there. It's like, I know something that's totally cool. Other people might not know about it. And um, therefore, I'm an insider. I look good. But by telling you, I can help you become an insider. Yeah. And, you know, there's another great example in the book of a, a bar in New York City. You walk inside a hot dog restaurant. You go inside a phone booth. You pick up a rotor dial phone. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. You, you call the phone. The back of the phone booth opens if you have a reservation. And you're led into the secret bar called Please Don't Tell. Now, <laughs> a bar hidden inside a hot dog restaurant? I mean, that's definitely, first of all, really cool. But it also makes you look really cool yeah. for talking about it. It makes you look like, as a nice word you used, insider. It makes you look smart and in the know. It's almost like a signal of identity. And so one way to get people talking is to give them something that makes them look good. The better that thing makes them look, the more they're going to pass it on. Yeah, and there's something about – I mean I think one of the key points there, at least as I, as I, as I read the book, is on that, on that point about social currency is that uh, there's um, – at, at some level, Cialdini, Robert Cialdini, um, who's also been a guest on this show, Robert Cialdini's um, uh, scarcity principle is, is sort of sort of adjacent to that and that people feel like – insiders, that people know something that other people don't know, that it's something that the knowledge, the insight is something scarce. Is that an accurate assessment? It's certainly part of it. So scarcity and exclusivity are two things that make people feel like insiders. You know, if you look at why people line up for the newest Apple product, mm-hmm. what do they do when they get it? They show other people. They tell other people because right. it makes them look good that they have it. It's scarce. It's not easy to get. Um, same with things that are exclusive. You have to have a membership to get access to. You know, a, a velvet rope at a club just makes people want to get on the other side of that velvet rope even more because it makes them look good. And so scarcity and exclusivity are certainly two parts of social currency. But there are other things as well. I mean, if you just look at how often people share photos of their pets or their kids, it's not because it's scarce or exclusive. It's just because it's part of who they are. Right. It's Good a point. signal of, of them. And so people love talking about themselves. Anything that gives them status or relates back to them is a great way to, to show off. And it often brings brands or products or ideas along for the ride because they're part of that conversation. Yeah. That, what's also interesting here that, that, that it's sort of Maybe it's my age and as, as someone who you know, remembers life before the internet and, and remembers life before Facebook. But you, you, you cite some research there showing that um, disclosure of, of information about yourself is actually inherently rewarding. Yes, it, it's amazing. It's you know you think about primary rewards. So you think about food, yeah. and you think about a tasty drink, and and other sorts of things. And they find the same brain region that lights up when you have a great snack or a delicious beverage um, <laughs> lights up when you talk about self relevant information. And mm-hmm. so it's really rewarding to talk about ourselves. I think all of us can think about a friend that we have that goes on and on about their lives. You know, their kids, the vacation they took, and social media has made this even worse. You know, people blabbing on and on about themselves. But there's really Really, a uh, you know an underlying neurological basis for some of this for making us enjoy talking about ourselves that that drives this behavior we see all the time. Yeah, so that's social. That's the principle of social currency. Again, the idea here is um, that you know, does your whatever message you're trying to spread does it make essentially does it make people look good? Does it make people feel like insiders? And certainly that cheesesteak uh, that that cheesesteak did that. 
Um, the second one is, um, which is very interesting, is is the T triggers. Tell us about triggers. I think the the best explanation of triggers comes from a simple example. If if I said peanut butter and, you might say jelly. Jelly, right? And it, it's almost like peanut butter is a little advertisement or a little <laughs> reminder uh-huh. for, for jelly. It's almost like jelly should pay peanut butter a kickback <laughs> every time peanut butter's around. Because uh-huh. if peanut butter's around, we start thinking about jelly. And, and that's exactly I can't get jelly out of my head now. <laughs> well, just be careful. We'll talk about some other things. It's okay. hard to get them out of your head once yeah. we talk about them. Oh, man. But, you know, if we say rum and, people might say, well, Coke. rum and Coke, you know. This is why Michelob has that slogan, weekends are made for Michelob, yeah. or Corona owns the beach, because you know, it's, it's hard to go on a beach vacation and never think about a Corona. It's almost impossible. You might not even drink beer, but you start thinking about it. And so these things in the environment are simple triggers, or basically reminders, that make us think about things that, that aren't there. Um, because mm. the idea is if, if something is top of mind, it's going to be tip of tongue. The more we're thinking about something, even if it's not the most exciting thing in the world, the much more likely we are to talk about it. So to go back to the cheesesteaks, for example, you know, $100 cheesesteak is remarkable. Wherever you are, whatever city, whatever country, $100 cheesesteak, cheesesteak should cost $5, 20 times that is remarkable. But it's a really great example for Philadelphia because people in Philadelphia love to talk about Mm cheesesteaks. If you go there, you know, unfortunately, people love to talk about cheesesteaks and, you know, people think about Philadelphia, they think about Rocky. Those are two of the things that that come to mind. And so it's a great thing. The $100 cheesesteak is a great thing for Philly because it's triggered so often in the environment. It's like being around a peanut butter that has that comes up a lot, that comes up very frequently. And so a trigger is an almost an environmental reminder to make people think about something, uh, even if that thing isn't physically there when they're having that conversation. Yeah, and there's some great, there's some really uh, fascinating research on on, on triggers. Uh, you cite research showing that um, you 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 um, play French music, and people are more likely to buy French wine. Play German music, people are more likely to buy. German wine. I mean, wh- that, 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 that shocks me. <laughs> it, it is pretty amazing. I think, you know, as it as shocks marketers- me, first of all, that anybody buys German wine, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the research actually has an interesting thing that I'll get to in, in one second. I think, you know, what's, what's amazing about this study is we often as marketers think about, well, how much do people like us? Yeah. If people like me a lot, they'll buy from me. Yeah. But it's not just about whether they like you. It's about whether they're thinking about you. Interesting. So, you know, when they play Very French and German wine in the grocery store, yeah. it's not like they make you like French wine or German wine anymore. But just like that peanut butter finds a jelly, you hear French music, you start thinking about French things, you start thinking, well, maybe I should have some French wine tonight. Maybe I should go check out some camembert cheese in the cheese aisle. Um, they play German wine. You're very right. You don't think about uh, play German music. You don't think about German wine. But you do think about beer. They actually find if you, ah. buy, you buy more German wine, but if you buy you actually buy less wine, you end up probably buying more beer because you associate Germany with beer. We did the same thing actually. We looked at where people vote. So the last time you voted, for example, where did you vote? Uh, I voted at the uh, Chevy Chase Community Center in uh, northwest Washington, D.C. Oh, fantastic. So um, you know, think about it. Different people vote at different locations. Some people vote at community centers. Some people yeah. vote at churches. Some vote at schools. It seems like it shouldn't matter, right, where right. we have to drop off our ballot. But our research shows that it actually has a significant impact on how we vote. Merely voting at a school, for example, can lead people to be more likely to support a school funding initiative wow. because it changes what's active in our mind. Just like peanut butter makes us think of jelly, voting in a school makes us think of different things. And so as a marketer, it's not just about how much people like you. It's are they thinking about you in the first place? Because if they're not thinking about you, it's going to be really unlikely that they take action, that they buy from you. Yeah, that has seemingly, and I want to get. There's another great example you have related to voting. What I want to get to in a moment, but that 
would seem to have pretty significant small d democratic implications there. That is, you could possibly steer an election based on your choice of, of polling places. I mean, and no joke, my wife lived in Philadelphia. I mean, this is interesting. My wife lived in Philadelphia. Uh, she was a clerk for a federal judge for a year. And, and so during one year, she actually voted in Philadelphia. And the voting um, polling place was actually a, um, a pizza joint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I Which wonder I if, like, you know, the, 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 the Board of Elections could, you know, I don't know, steer the, um, um, the elections by cho- choosing the polling places. That's a fascinating concept. I think there, there is a lot of concern around that. I've actually been oh, uh-huh. an expert witness on a couple court cases, Interesting. One in Florida, for example, where uh, a guy was going to vote. Uh, he was assigned to vote in a church. Mm-hmm. He was on an abortion initiative, and there was, oh. a big, you know, uh, there was a big religious symbol in the room where he's voting. And he said, well, hold on. What about the separation of church and state? Yeah. So there's certainly concerns about manipulation by the parties in charge um, and these sorts of questions around this issue. You know, we don't we don't think about those subtle things in the environment. Yeah. It's not like we're, we're at a school and we say, well, consciously I should support this initiative, but we're often sort of in the balance, right? We're not sure. Well, we we want to keep our tax dollars, but we want to help schools. Mm-hmm. And so if we're at a school, that balance tips a little bit in one way or the sure, other. Sure, sure. No, that's a great point. Let's, let's stick with voting here for a moment. You also talk about uh, – and I see this myself when I vote at the Chevy Chase uh, Community Center in northwest Washington, D.C. Um, actually, I vote there because I vote I, – I like to vote early. Um, but when I vote on election day, I actually vote at um, vote at a school. I wonder if that's uh, – now I'm thinking about whether that's affected any of my choices. But one of the things that always happens is you leave your polling place, you, 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 you mark your ballot, and you get a little sticker. And the sticker says what, Jonah? Uh, I voted. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's, the, what's, what's that about? I mean you, you cite that as an example of another, you know, uh, another element of making messages spread. Tell us about that. So the element we're talking about here is public. Yeah. Um, and the idea of public is, is very simple. You know, we want to get more word of mouth for our initiatives. More word of mouth will be helpful, turning customers into advocates, all those types of things. But um, sometimes we can even get our ideas to catch on without people talking. Uh, if you think about it, you walk around uh, any place, you see people's shirts, and you might actually decide, wow, I like that shirt. Maybe I should buy something similar. But you can't see their socks, which makes it much less likely mm. that you're going to buy the same socks. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea there very simply is people tend to imitate others. We all know that phrase, monkey see, monkey do. But the monkey see part is much more important than we often think. Yeah. Because if you can't see what other people are doing, it's really hard to imitate it. And so what becomes very important is how public is that action. What the I voted sticker does very nicely is it takes something that's otherwise private, the fact that you voted. Exactly. You know, if I saw you on the street, Dan, I wouldn't have any idea if you voted or not unless you have a sticker on that says I voted. So that sticker takes an otherwise private act and makes it more publicly visible, which is amazingly uh, important for for getting things to catch on. We did an analysis of of car sales in the United States, for example, and we looked at why people buy cars. And we found, sure enough, you know, low prices helps, needing a new car helps. But we also found people are more likely to buy a car if they're neighbor has bought one recently, if people who live near them have bought one recently. Very simple, you know, simple social influence. It's, it matters in a big way, but yep. social influence. But we also found it's moderated by where people live. If you live in an area where it's easier to see other people on the road, people ah. drive more often, uh-huh. there's less snow, less rain, yep. easier to see, easier to imitate. If you live in a place where it's, it's hard to see where people are driving, you're not on the road very often, it's not as strong. And so if it's public, it's more likely to, to grow. Is, I can't remember from the book. Forgive me for that. Is is there evidence that um, um, that that those I voting stickers have any kind of material effect on voting behavior, on vote voting turnout, or voting voter participation, or anything like that? 
Unfortunately, I haven't looked at that, yeah. but I, it, it, there's no way it could hurt. And yeah, I think, oh my God. Just, you know, it's the type of thing where you can be at work one day and you yeah. don't remember that it's voting day. Right. And then a couple people come in and so it's not just public. It acts as a trigger to remind you, oh, wait, I'm supposed to vote today. Right, and you don't have to – and this goes back to the key point here, which I think is, is, is to me was just really kind of – staggering, which is that it's not that – and you said it already. It's not that people have to like voting. They don't have to like you. You just got to get people thinking about things and then you have a fighting chance for your message to your message to spread. We're talking – you're listening to Office Hours. We're talking to Jonah Berger. He's a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and he's also the author of a terrific book about, um, about uh, the science of social transmission or – why some things spread and others don't. Uh, his book is called Contagious, Why Things Catch On. Jonah has um, uh, has uh, six elements to why things catch on uh, that, that work out the acronym STEPS, uh, social currency, triggers, emotion, public, practical value, and stories. We've been talking about social currency and triggers. I want to stay one more, one more beat here on triggers, um, only because this hits especially close to home. So you, you, you talk about how People liking something isn't isn't necessarily a prerequisite for them adopting the idea or the behavior or doing something. Uh, it's really thinking about it. And as an example of that, um, you talk about negative reviews of people's books, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the bane of our existence. But maybe it shouldn't be. Um, you, in fact, show that negative reviews can actually increase sales. Yeah. So we tend to think that negative hurts. Um, that you know, negative reviews. Whether it's uh, you know Tom Cruise a couple of years ago jumping on the couch on Oprah, looking crazy, made Mission Impossible <laughs> tank, or you know we're a we're a local entrepreneur and somebody says something negative about our service or our product online, and we think oh it's it's going to be terrible. Um, but it's actually a little bit surprising. We did an analysis of uh, New York Times books reviewed by the New York Times. Yeah. Looked at positive and negative reviews. We found that positive reviews generally help. Someone says something good about you, sales go up. Negative reviews, you might say. Well, any, any publicity is good publicity. There's that old adage. It's got to be true. It's not. Uh, if you're really popular already, if you're a, uh, you know, a John Grisham or a Tom Clancy and you come out with a book, a negative review can hurt. If you're famous already, it can decrease sales. But if you're unknown, if people don't really realize you exist in the first place, then even negative can be a positive because it makes people realize you exist. Mm. If you're a first-time author, an mm-hmm. unknown author, and you get reviewed in the Times, it's a lot of people seeing you and hearing about you being more aware of you than they would have been previously. I actually, funny enough, uh, you know, got reviewed in the New York Times near when the book came out. was so excited. You know, I couldn't wait the next morning to open up the newspaper, open it up, and the reviewer just slammed the book. Um, you know, she wanted me to talk about viral video and Gangnam Style and all these different things. And I'm a little more of a scientist than, you know, someone who talks about all the pop culture examples. But she was disappointed and I was disappointed. And the sales on Amazon went the highest they've ever been. (laughs) So, you know, it was the top 50 on Amazon after this thing came out. And not because it changed whether or not people liked the book, but they heard about it. They were more aware of it than they they would have been otherwise. And so I I think that difference between awareness and persuasion is really important. It's not just about persuading people. It's about making them aware of something in the first place. You know, take reusable grocery bags. My favorite example, reusable grocery yeah, talk bags. talk to us about that. I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I want to use reusable grocery bags. I, I have them. I mean to use them, but I don't always use them. Yep. I want to use them. I like them, but I don't always take action. And part of why, if we think about it, is we get to the store and that's when we remember. We don't remember before the store. Sure. We remember when we get there and it's sure. sort of too late. It's almost like a peanut butter but in the wrong place. And so we need to be sure, well, what's the trigger that might make people think about us around when the desired behavior is going to take place? How can we think about it when we're at home, when we have those bags and we're going to get the action to happen? 
Uh, right. I mean, okay. I'll tell you what we do in the pink household because I know yeah. that I know that listeners are dying to find this out. So uh, we have them in the we keep the bags in the back of the car. Yes. Um, now that helps out a little bit, but there's a problem. There's a trigger problem there, which I experienced yesterday, uh, which is that um, when you exit your car, when you're going to the grocery store, you never look in the back. You never look in the in yes. the in the in the trunk. So for me, at least, it's it doesn't it's not a sufficient trigger. So we we got to come up with a better solution to that because. Here in the District of Columbia, we also have we also pay five cents per plastic bag, so um, so there's a gigantic economic cost here for the Pink family on this. But we'll yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll we'll report back on a future episode how we resolve <laughs> that. So we, we talk about so we're talking about these uh, social currency, which is a really fascinating topic. I, I think triggers is really really fascinating. Let's go back to something you said earlier, Joni. You talked about how you're um, you're doing some consulting work uh, around getting more people to walk. Uh, you know what 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 would be um, Give us an example how social currency or triggers might help us get more people walking. So I'll, I'll give you a couple. One around triggers. Uh, if you think about it, there's a, a trigger out there. There's a peanut butter out there that's almost everywhere, and we see it every single day, yet we never think about it. And that's the walk sign on the crosswalk okay. uh, or the walk sign in, the, in yellow when people are crossing the street. People okay. see them, but they don't really think about them. Um, and so one thing we talked about is how can we use that? It's so frequent. It's out there all the time. How can we use that as a reminder to get people to walk? How can we think about creating conversations around yeah. The walking symbol, how can we associate that with the messaging from the organization that's, that's involved here so that now every time when people see it, they don't just think, okay, it's t- time to cross the street. They think, wow, I should be walking more often because it's out there all the time. You don't have to create it. You just have to create the link between it and the memory and the behavior that you want people to engage in. And so you know, that's a case where the thing is already out there. You just need that link. You need to create the peanut butter to jelly, to jelly link. Another thing we talked about around social currency was people love to compete. Mm. They love to compete on any dimension you can think of. You know, if you, if you fly very often and you're hanging out with other people that travel often, they love to talk about it, which frequent flyer status they have. Or, sure. you know, at a, at a nice dinner, people pull out the American Express black card and everybody goes, wow, look at that. And people <laughs> talk about their golf handicaps. Mm-hmm. So anything you can quantify and you can make public, yeah. people will compete over. And so one thing, just think about step counters, right? We sure. all have, now many of us have personal step counters. We, you know, wear a fuel band or other sorts of things. How can we make that more public so people can see what others' score is and so compete around it? Um, because you know, if, if I know, hey, Dan, you had 1,001 steps and last time I had 1,000, I want to get 1,002 to be above you and then we'll go back and forth. And it creates – you talked about incentives. It's not a monetary incentive. It's a social incentive. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you design it, these effectively, it's not costly. Yeah, and it's also, it's also a form – I mean I always thought something like that. And I am someone who – it's interesting you bring it up because I am now – I mean it's too bad we're not on television – um, but I wear one of the jawbone up bands uh, to keep my step counts, and and it's not so much that I want to win anything, it, but but having some form of comparison would be useful because it's a form of benchmarking, it's a form of feedback. So if I do my ten thousand steps today, I might feel good about myself. But if I realize that my um, my other schlubby friends are doing twelve thousand, I might actually up my game a little bit. Definitely, and I mean, and I think that's the social currency side of it, and it's social currency and, and public. It, it's both put together, and I think you know, as, as you said, it even just is benchmarking for the self. I mean, yeah. Imagine you got on a scale, and it only told you the pounds you weighed in terms of the hundreds. 
So it only told you whether you yeah. made 0, 100, 100, 200, or 300. It'd be really hard to know how well you were doing. And so the neat thing about numbers is it benchmarks you whatever it is. You know, we think about this with social media metrics all the time. Mm-hmm. Why is everyone chasing social media? Because it's easy to measure. Because we can say, hey, yeah. we have a, a higher number of followers than we did before. But the danger of metrics is whatever you measure, people will optimize. It's almost like that old Absolutely anecdote right. about the drunk and the, the streetlight. So I don't know if you've heard this one, yeah. but there's a drunk walking around looking for his keys and the police officer sees him. He says, yeah. oh, can I help you find your keys? And so they search for them. And the police officer goes, you know, why, by the way, are we searching around the streetlight? Did you lose your keys there? And, and the drunk goes, no, that's just where the light is. Yeah. And, and metrics are almost like that. They shine a light on some aspect of their lives and encourage us to optimize that aspect whether right. it's the right one to optimize or not. So we just need to be careful. Right, right, right. It's an interesting idea if you could take social currency in your, – your, your example of, of weighing made me think, I wonder – it's probably out there already. I just don't know about it where you basically have a circle of friends or colleagues or whoever and every time you get on the scale, you see not only what you weigh but what they weigh. <laughs> that's a great idea. I mean, that's probably exists out there, but that could be that would be interesting because you have some form of I mean, you benchmark against yourself, but you also benchmark against others. Uh, let's talk about um, so we got social currency triggers. There's some some really really interesting stuff also on emotions. That's our third. Jonah uh, Berger has this concept called Steps. It's an acronym for the elements that 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 cause um, ideas and behaviors and products and services to catch on. Social currency triggers emotion, public, practical value, and stories. Let's go to the E, which is emotion. Um, It makes intuitive sense that emotions would be more likely to be shared. But I think what's so interesting about it is that it's certain kinds of emotions, not all emotions. Explain. When we think about emotion, we tend to think about positive versus negative. It's easy to say, well, things like excitement or humor or contentment, all those feel good. And things like anger, anxiety, or sadness, all of those feel bad. Uh, But when we did an analysis, for example, we looked at the New York Times most emailed list, over 7,000 articles written over a six-month period to understand which articles were highly shared and which weren't, we found something interesting. It wasn't just about valence. It wasn't just about positive or or negative. So take two negative emotions, for example, anger and and sadness. Mm -hmm. Neither of those feel very good. But if you look at the data, people are much more likely to talk and share when they feel angry rather than when they feel sad. And same thing on the positive side. If, if you look when we're excited or when we're laughing at something, we're much more likely to share it compared to when we're content. Mm. And so what we realize is, is there's really a second dimension of emotion, and that is how uh, active or physiologically arousing yeah. that emotion is. Some emotions, our heart gets beating quickly. We want to take an action. When you feel angry, for example, you want to throw something at the television if yep. your team loses. Yep. You want to yell at a customer service representative if you get bumped off a flight. You want to take an action. When you're sad, you sort of don't want to do very much. Mm-hmm, you want to mm-hmm. curl up in a ball and eat a bowl of ice cream mm-hmm. or macaroni and cheese or bacon, depending on your favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing on the positive side. High arousal emotions drive us to take action. Low arousal, like contentment, are deactivating. And so as you know, marketers or individuals that are trying to help a product or idea spread, it's not enough just to make people feel good. Sometimes we say, well, okay, we left them with a positive experience. Mm. That's good. Positive contentment isn't going to do very much. You know, you think about when you walk out of a yoga class or a, a spin class, you feel pretty good, but you don't want to do very much. We need to figure out, well, how can we move them from low arousal positive to high arousal? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How can we make them excited or inspired? Um, and then they'll be much more likely to share. Uh, yeah, that's a, right. That, that extra dimension was quite interesting because it turns out that even things that are you know, emotionally significant, you mentioned contentment. 
um, and, um, uh, and and sadness don't really it makes sense now don't really get us to don't really get us to move it's actually an interesting it, it explains um, at least part of certain cable television which is you want to as you say in the book you want to make people mad not sad you want to make people mad not sad that's how get that's how to get them to, that's how to get them talking there is a high arousal emotion though that I found just really, really interesting and surprised me. And it, and it derives from that research that you did on which articles get shared. And one of the high arousal emotions is one that we don't talk a lot about, uh, which is awe. Tell us about that. So awe, the, the colloquial way to think about awe is in terms of inspiration. So imagine, you know, you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or you, you walk into the National History Museum and you're looking at a Tyrannosaurus Rex towering, you know, six stories above you with huge teeth and arms. Um, when we see something that amazes us, that sort of breaks our mental model of the world, we often talk about it inspiring awe. Uh, lots of religions have good pieces of, of awe to them. Lots of experiences both in nature and, and otherwise have aspects of awe. And so awe is one of the most highly shared uh, emotions. Uh, in the New York Times, for example, lots of scientific discoveries – I'm a scientist. I would love to say that all scientific discoveries are interesting. Some are more <laughs> than others. Uh, but what we found is that what science does is it inspires people. It amazes them to think about new ways. You know, the fact that monkeys have emotion, for example, or right. we found a new planet. That's just so different for our way of thinking sure. that it inspires awe and, and drives action or even more, more on a day-to-day basis. I mean, we've all seen um, that uh, singer online, Susan Boyle, sort of the old frumpy woman who sang this song that just amazed us. You know, we thought she was going to be terrible. She wasn't dressed well. She was weird. And, you know, we thought, get her off the stage. But she sang this song. It was so amazing. And millions of people shared it. And so being inspired, again, is a high arousal positive emotion um, that drives us to take actions. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I think just awe in general is a topic that um, we don't think enough about in, in our own lives, um, certainly in the, at least in the secular part of our lives and, and certainly in the, in the marketing part of our lives. Uh, we've got a few more minutes left here. Let's talk uh, about one more aspect here, which is uh, public. The idea behind public is that um, you want – essentially for a product or service, you want people to be able to see you using it. So in some level, my up band is a good example of that. I wear it on my wrist. I display it. It's not like socks. So people can say, hmm, what is that thing? And, and I, can, I can talk about that. But, I, but there's another aspect of public that I thought was interesting and I think that sometimes we, we forget about it. Um, which is um, um, well, you you have an example. I'll just have you tell the story about um, when you go to your MBA students, um, your second year MBA students, and ask and divide them in two groups and ask them questions about what they want to do with your their lives. Tell us about that. Making a job or choosing a job is one of the most important decisions or biggest decisions people make in, in their lives, probably after getting married and, and buying a house and, and having kids is, is one's job. And so you'd think that people should be pretty independent in their job choices. But there's something sort of interesting. I, I take my second-year MBA students. I split them down the room, half one side, half the other. And I ask one half to write down without talking to each other, what did you want to do when you got to business school? So why did you come to business school in the first place? What did you think you wanted? to do. And when I ask people that question, there's an amazing diversity of responses. You know, you get some people who wanted to start a nonprofit, some people wanted to change healthcare, some people wanted to be entertainers, uh, work <laughs> in media, you know, and you get some people that wanted to do consulting and, and investment banking. I asked the second half of the room basically the same question, but just what do you want to do now? 
So now in your second year of business school, what do you want to do? And what you notice is there's amazing hurting, amazing uh, convergence in what people end up saying. You know, basically two-thirds of people end up saying they want to do consulting or investment banking. And so even though before they had this wide range of different things they wanted to do, everyone wanted to pursue a particular type of thing, once they get in this environment like business school, they all end up following one another. They all end up sort of going with the herd. And I think whatever industry you're in or whatever market or you know, career you, you have, it's easy to see these herding effects. People tend to look to others as a signal of information. And so, well, if lots of other people are talking about iBanking, maybe I should think about doing it as well. But it's not that it's a better career. It's just that other people are talking about it more. In the case of business school, they recruit earlier. Mm. And so because investment banking consulting were one of the first recruiters, more people talk about it. So more people think about doing it. So everyone ends up converging on the same thing, even if it would be better for people to do different things. And so I think the take-home message here is you know, if you want people to do something, make it more public or easier to see. But if you want people to do different things or you don't want them to follow another one another, how can you make the public more private? Interesting. There's, a fun story I tell in the book about drug use. Um, and, you know, you think about those just say no ads uh, yeah. back from the 1980s. You know, you look at them now, it's a, a wonderful timepiece, you know, just say no and the crack in the egg and all these different things. But if you look at what those ads did, in some cases, the data actually suggests they might have increased drug use. And you'd say, well, how could anti-drug ads increase drug use? They're all telling about, well, don't do drugs. You know, some kid at school is going to ask you to do drugs. You got to be ready to say no. What the researchers suggest is, hey, you're showing little kids this thing, drugs, that they might never have thought of before. <laughs> and you're saying, hey, some kids at school are going to ask you if you want to try it, and you have to know what to say. And imagine you're a young kid sitting at home going, wow, I didn't know there was this thing called drugs. And the cool kids at school are doing it. Who knew? Right. Maybe I should check these things out. <laughs> and so the mere fact that it's saying that other people are doing it, and this is you know, traditional social influence uh, all the way back to Cialdini as well, sure. but you know, make it more public. People are going to imitate it whether it's good or not. And so you've got to be really careful about how you use that social information. Uh, one of the many great stories in the book Contagious by Jonah Berger, uh, we're going to wrap up here in a moment. Uh, so Jonah, when you went to graduate school, what did you want to do? Uh, it's funny. I, uh, uh, graduate school, I wasn't sure. Undergraduate, I wanted to be an engineer. I actually thought going in that I would be an environmental engineer, um, either that or design sneakers. I've always, uh, I've always loved fun sneakers. I wanted to work for Nike designing sneakers. Um, I started taking social science. I thought it was really neat. Um, and then I actually, like many people, you know, came across this book, The Tipping Point, that I really enjoyed. And Gladwell was very generous. I asked him, you know, are there other books I can read? But what I soon realized is there just wasn't a lot of science behind some that. We just didn't know all the answers. And so one of the fun things that I've spent the last 10 years doing is trying to put some science behind these things. Mm -hmm. You know, why do people talk? Why do they share things, both online and offline? And how can we use that to make our products, ideas, and initiatives more likely to become popular? And here's a question that, that our listeners always like. So to tell us, what's your typical day like? Are you an early riser, late riser? Do you work late at night? Do you, you know, how, you know, how, how insanely anal retentive are you in your work day? <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, for me, uh, I actually get a lot of sleep. You talk to people that are, I'm always amazed when people say things like they get five hours of sleep. I'm actually a pretty healthy sleeper. I try to get, you know, eight hours a night or something like that. Yeah, those people are, those people are what we and um, what you social scientists refer to as liars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just – I'm not that productive. I can't do it on five hours of sleep. No way. Those, no those way. Those folks are more impressive. We're big fans of sleep here at Office Hours. <laughs> but, you know, I, I work um, well in the morning. I also work well at night. I think the key 
to being effective in whatever you do is to, to cut out some of the distractions. It's uh-huh. so hard in, in today's day and age. You know, there's always something pinging or buzzing yeah. or going. And particularly if you want to write, whether it's academically or otherwise, or you really want to think deeply about an idea, it's important to spend some time thinking about it, to carve out that time to give it the space it deserves to percolate. I find you know, breaks are great for creativity. I think sometimes the best when I'm in the shower or I'm playing soccer, I'm not working on it. But working in blocks really helps me get things done that I couldn't get done. How do you once. how do you how do you weed out distractions? You know, uh, I try either I wake up early and I try to take care of all the email and then shut it yep. uh, for a couple hours and get it done. Or I work late when people stop pinging you. You know, I set up goals for myself. I say, hey, you got to work for an hour. You got to get two pages done before you can look at something else. I, you know, I try to set all my meetings up for certain days of the week. So you know, Tuesday or Thursday will be really overloaded, but Monday or Wednesday will be basically free for some of the bigger thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you have to be protective of your time. Yeah. I think you know it's important to be available and be flexible, but if you need to think big, you got to craft out and, and cut out the time to do it. Well, that's, uh, great. that's great advice. And Jonah uh, Berger certainly has thought big in his book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. Jonah, thanks so much for being on Office Hours. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, this, that's it for Office Hours. Tune in for our next episode when we'll be talking with Biz Stone, one of the co-founders of Twitter and author of Things a Little Bird Told Me. If you've missed an episode of this program... You ought to be ashamed of yourself, but you can make amends and listen to previous episodes on iTunes or danpink.com. Until then, I'm Daniel Pink. Thanks for listening.